decision I had to make pretty much right away. And that was what I wanted to major in. And, and actually for me, I kind of went in with an idea. And I, I quickly said, yes, I want to be a religion major. Some of you have a little bit of a confused look on your face. Yes, they have a religion department at the University of Georgia, believe it or not. And they also have a philosophy department. And I thought to myself, as soon as I saw the campus map, I saw that the religion department and the philosophy department met in the same building. If I minored in philosophy, I would never have to leave the building. I could just stay all day. And so I decided that I was going to be a philosophy minor. So I went in and I took my very first philosophy class that fall. And I quickly realized that I didn't want to be a philosophy minor. And I also realized that everybody in the philosophy major, people taking those classes, were, in their own opinion, the smartest people on the university campus. They loved to hear themselves talk. And so I would just sit in there and blah, 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 blah. And they were talking about all these things that I have no idea about. I apparently missed the intro class I was supposed to take before I went in there. And they would just keep going and going and going. Well, there was one guy who sat kind of near me in the class. He was an older gentleman. And he, he, to be honest, he kind of stood out a little bit in the class. It was a bunch of college-age guys. And then there was this older gentleman who, who sat there. And he never really said anything. He was always pretty quiet. Well, <clears throat> one day we got to the favorite topic of everybody in philosophy, the existence of God. So we're going through and we're looking at what this smart person said, and then we're looking at what this smart person said. And of course, everybody else is smart too, so they've got to chime in what they've said too. And so they're, they're chiming in and everything, and people are going back and forth. And, and finally, someone made the claim, you know, it's obvious that God doesn't exist. Just go down to the science department. They'll tell you all about it. And then the older gentleman spoke up, and he said, you know, I, I, I actually am auditing this class. thought it would be interesting to take it. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually a professor here at the university. I teach in the physics department. And I, I think that everything we've discussed today is very interesting. But I just want to say one thing in regards to what was just said. If you want to talk about the existence of God and how he doesn't exist, stay right here in the philosophy department. But don't come down to the physics department trying to sell that because we don't buy it. And everybody just kind of sat back for a minute. And as I took that class, I began to be around people who didn't believe in God. People who said that they didn't need any sort of religion. And I started hearing their stories and seeing a little bit of, of what had shaped them to be the way that they were. And that next fall, I took a job at a sandwich shop in downtown Athens. Now, I've been in ministry for over 10 years. The most significant of those years of ministry was the year I worked in the sandwich shop in downtown Athens. And as I worked there, I got to see all that goes on in downtown Athens. Lord help us all. And I got to meet a lot of people that I wouldn't ordinarily meet if I spent all of my time in the church. And there was one guy who was a co-worker of mine. And he was a dropout from Brown. He had gone to Brown, Ivy League, very, very smart guy. And he dropped out and had moved to the South. Uh, he says he was chasing a girl. Well, the girl was nowhere to be found, so he was working at 
the sandwich shop with me. And so we, we would work and we would have all these conversations. He was incredibly intelligent. And he, he had no interest in religion. He had no interest in God. But I, actually, I didn't mention this at the early service. I kind of forgot about this. But with our Bible presentations today, one day he and I were talking after work. And he started asking questions about Christianity, why I bought into it, and all that sort of stuff. And, and he, he admitted he had some baggage in his past related to religion, and that's part of what turned him off. And he said, you know, I've, I've never really taken the time to read the Bible. Maybe I should do that someday. And so I reached in my car, and I pulled out the Bible that I got when I was a third grader. I said, here, take this. And who knows what happened after that. But uh, it was just a moment where he was sitting there saying, I don't have any interest in this. I don't have any use for it. I'll take your Bible. And what I discovered with all these encounters with people who said they didn't need religion, all these people who said they didn't need God, they weren't interested in Christianity, is they were looking for something. They were sitting there wrestling with something. And they were just trying to find it. They just weren't sure where to find it quite yet. Well, there's a blogger that I enjoy reading from time to time. He goes by the pseudonym, The Unappreciated Pastor. And so I guess I have some things I don't really have anything to relate to with. But, but anyways, he, he is a satire artist, a satirist, whatever you would call that. And he is always telling church jokes and stories and things like that about life in the church and me living in the church. I'm always up for jokes about the church because it just keeps our sanity about. So uh, I always appreciate things from the unappreciated pastor. Well, most of the things that he posts are rather satirical and they're very tongue-in-cheek, very funny. But occasionally he'll have something that he'll post that's a little more thought-provoking, a little more intriguing. Well, late last year, he had a post, and it actually ended up being circulated across a couple of news outlets, and that post was called, Hello, My Name is Church. Some of you might have seen this. This is the way that it begins. Hello, my name is Church. I'm sure you've heard a lot about me. I have no shortage of critics. Perhaps you've heard that I am boring, shallow, cheap, a waste of time. You've heard that I am full of hypocrites, clowns, greedy people, and the self-righteous. Maybe you have visited me before and discovered horrible music, passionless singing, dry preaching, <coughs> rude congregants. Maybe you needed me and I was too busy, too righteous, too broke, or too blind. Maybe you joined me and found that I was distant, demanding, dull, preoccupied. Maybe you tried to serve in me but were caught off guard by business meetings, committees, teams, and bureaucracy. Maybe you left and were surprised that no one called, cared, noticed, or invited you back. Perhaps your experience has driven you to speak negatively, negatively of me, swear to never come back to me, proclaim that no one needs me, and believe that you're better off without me. There is a lie that so many people out there buy into. They don't need the church. They don't need religion. The question for us today is why is that lie 
so prevalent. We've been going through this series called The Five Lies. And today, that is our lie that we're dealing with, the issue of religion. People say, I don't need religion. I don't need religion. Well, I believe that we live in an age of ambivalence and apathy related to organized religion. If you have your message notes, that's the first thing in there. And the reason for that is, is that there seems to be some sort of decline going on with organized religion. And people are starting to say, hey, I don't need that. Whether they're outwardly saying it or not, by their attendance, we're able to see that that's the way that they feel. Between the years 2011 and 2012, the United Methodist Church nationally lost 87,319 members. In the South Georgia Conference, that's just from Macon on down in the state of Georgia, as a conference, we lost 3,249 members just last year. In our own community, where we have more churches per capita than any other city in the world, so they say 411 churches to be exact, as was yelled out in a 30 service by one of the hecklers. Uh, <laughs> in our community, where there's an abundance of churches, and you know the, the old saying, the joke is, in Atlanta they ask you where you work, in Savannah they ask you what you drink, and in Macon they ask you where do you go to church. That's the way that you introduce people, and that's the way that you get to know one another. There are so many churches here, yet would you believe that according to statistical surveys, that a third of the people who live in our community say they have no regular religious activity in their lives. There's an ambivalence. There's an apathy. People look at the church and they say, I don't need that. Well, why is that? I believe that the real answer to that lie of I don't need religion is actually the truth that confronts that is I believe you have one. I believe everybody is religious. And I believe that that's a little bit of what Paul was dealing with when he went to Morris Hill and spoke to the people there. In Acts 17, we pick up in the 22nd verse, it says, Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Morris Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. Now, this was not necessarily a compliment from his perspective. He, he's saying it because he's trying to earn their respect and earn a hearing with them. He's saying it in an admirable way. But really, Scripture tells us a few verses earlier that he was deeply distressed by all the religious activity that he saw. There were all these shrines to these other gods. There were all these things that people were using to worship other gods. And so he stands up and says, hey, I get it. I can tell that you are absolutely religious. And I believe that for some people to look at us in our culture today, they might look and see that we have apathy and ambivalence related to the church, but they probably still would look and say, these people are pretty religious. To be religious is to be devoted to something, to be consumed with something, to give honor to something. And so people might look at us and say, I can perceive that you're a very religious people. There was a missionary several years ago who went to a country on the other side of the world and as he ministered there, he got to know people in the community. And it was a community in which there was a heavy dose of idolatry going on. 
there, there was worship to a lot of different foreign false gods. And so the missionary waged war on it. The missionary went in and said, you need to do away with these altars to these gods. You need to do away with your worship of this god and this god. And, and the people, over time, as they discovered the truth of Jesus Christ, they began to listen. And so they would listen and they would start to get away from their idolatry. Well, a couple of years later, the missionary had come back to the States, and one of the people that he had ministered to overseas came to visit. And the visitor came, and they were just a little distressed, and they're, they're looking around, and they're going to church with the missionary. They're going out to eat with the missionary. They're talking to the missionary's American friends. And as, as they're going along, the missionary just starts to realize something's not right here. They're... They're not as responsive as they usually are. They seem to be concerned about something. They seem to be preoccupied. And so finally, the missionary turned to his friend from overseas and said, What is it, King? Why are you so preoccupied? Why do you seem so distracted? Why is it that you are so concerned about being here? You, you, you haven't said anything for the past day. And, and the friend turned to him and said, When you were in our country... You spoke against all forms of idolatry. And we listened to you. And we tore down our altars to our false gods. But what about altars you have in your country to your false gods, the things that you idolize, the things that you chase after? And the missionary was like, you know, we, we went to church. We only worship Jesus Christ and, and Holy Father there. And, and the friend was like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about in your churches. I'm talking about in your homes where there are these huge screens where you watch things going on in stadiums where people are chanting people's names, worshiping the teams, worshiping the, the people. Can you, can you just imagine someone who's never been around that having this perception? And, and what about these restaurants, these cathedrals that you have to eating? You people are obsessed with eating. There are some places you can just go and go and go and go and eat and eat and eat. eat. Let's get that way. But well, what about that? What about the fact that whenever your American friends get around and talk, all they talk about is money. All they talk about is success. Maybe you need to do some work in your own country for the altars that are built here. Now, I believe that we all have a void within us. And that void, I, I saw it in the eyes of my friends who said that they didn't need religion. And said that they didn't believe in God. That there's a void within all of us that longs to worship something. Longs to be devoted to something. Longs to find whoever it is that created us. Paul continues, as I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. They had an altar to all these gods. And they had another altar to an unknown <coughs> God. Because there was some longing within them that they couldn't quite pin on a certain God. They were searching for something. They were searching to worship something they couldn't quite find. And Paul comes with the good news. That God has been made known to you. That God has been revealed 
through the person of Jesus Christ. And he unfolds the story and he says this. He says that all of the people were created so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And this God, this unknown God that has been made known to you through Jesus Christ, in that God, we live and move and have our being. Yet, so many people have heard of this unknown God. This God has been revealed to them. Yet they still turn away. They still look at the church and they see something that is not relevant to them. And they say, I don't need religion. And for some of them, the lie that they believe is not so much that I don't need religion. Sometimes they look at us and they say, I don't need that religion. They look at what we have to offer and they don't really see the point of it. Now there's a group that I, I thought this was a joke at first. And I started doing some research on it, and it actually is legitimate. And uh, it, it was founded by a couple of comedians, hence the fact I thought it was a joke to begin with. But it's called the Sunday Assembly. And it began in England, and it started springing up. There's actually a group that meets in Atlanta. And, and there are all these groups that have popped up around the world called part of this network of the Sunday Assembly. Now, what the Sunday Assembly is, is they get together on Sundays. They have no religious affiliation, but they get together, they hear inspiring talks, they sing encouraging music, and they try to make a positive difference in the world. It sounds a lot like church. And what these people say is that they liked the idea of church, they just didn't really see the point in God. They didn't really see the point in being a part of this religion. And so they said, let's just do all the things that you would do in church without having the strings attached of a certain God. And so they created this idea of a place where you would come and essentially worship. These are people who claim that they don't believe in any particular God. But there's still some sort of longing within them where they, they see the benefits of, of having a positive effect in the world coming together and sharing concerns with one another, living in community with each other. But they don't see the point in God. So why are there people who like the idea of church and they like coming to something that's like church, but they don't want anything to do with our religion? They don't want anything to do with our church. For many of them, perhaps they look at the church and they don't see the same positive effect that they can accomplish on their own. So they don't see the point. For many of them, they look and they see a faith that's ambivalent and apathetic. And so they, they don't see the point in grabbing a hold of it. A lot of people look at the church and they don't see a church that's living as though they have found the one true God in whom we live and move and have our being. In Revelation, there's a 
very convicting passage that says this, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. After all, you say I'm rich and I've grown wealthy and I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3, 15 through 17. The reality for us is that maybe we don't need that religion either. Maybe we don't need a religion that's, that's prone lukewarm. Maybe we don't need a religion that's void of the experience of a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Because I don't believe that Jesus came to establish another religion. I believe that Jesus came to establish a new way of life in which we would live into the promises that he has for us, that we would live into the hope and the power and the redemption that's found in him, that we would live into a life that's part of seeing the lame walk and the blind see. There's a Christian author and noted speaker, uh, professor, by the name of Tony Campola, and over the years he's been a little controversial. But there, there's a great story that uh, John Horton brought to mind the other day as we were talking about this idea of I don't need religion. And Tony Campola had a, a student come and visit him one day, and the student was saying, I, I don't believe in God anymore. You know, I used, I used to buy into that, but I, I just don't buy it anymore. And Campola challenged him, you know, why is it that you don't believe in God? Tell me about this God you don't believe in. And so he says, I, I don't believe in a God that would allow suffering in the world. I don't believe in a God that would allow this to happen. I don't believe in a God that would do this, that would condemn people. And everything he was saying, Campola would respond, that's fine, I don't believe in that God either. And after a while, Campola was able to reconstruct the idea of God for this young man and show him that sometimes we turn, we have this idea of God that doesn't line up with who God really is. We're not proclaiming with our lives, we're not believing with our hearts the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And so some of us might look at the apathy and the ambivalence that, that's found in the church sometimes, and we might say, I, I don't need that. But I would say that if that's the faith that's there, we probably don't. I believe that there's a faith that's bigger than that. That if we took hold of it, the world would not look and say, I don't need that. They would say, that's the one thing I've got to have. If they saw the passion brew up within us, they saw the experience of Christ in our lives, they would say, that's the thing I've got to have. And so as we look to combat this lie, there, there are three things I want to leave you with that I believe are, are powerful for us. The first is that we would have a relationship that is personal. John 17, 3, Jesus is praying before the Father and he says, I pray that they would know you, the Father, that this is eternal life, that they would know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That the idea of eternal life that if we begin to understand that eternal life is not just about our final destination, eternal life is about celebrating the goodness of a relationship with Jesus Christ right here and now. 
through Jesus Christ, we know the Father. And that is the life that is everlasting. The second thing is a relevant message of hope. All throughout Scripture, there's a message of hope. But so many times in, in our lives, what we display about the church is that it's just the same old, same old. Nothing to get too excited about here. A couple of years ago, I read a book about the series of talks called TED Talks. Some of you might have seen them, tedtalks.com, I believe it's the website. And they're, these, they're just these interesting, thought-provoking talks. And they, they take some of the best ones and they put them on their web, website that are done at different conferences around the U.S. And it, what this book was about was taking some of the principles that make the best TED Talks. And there was one aspect of that this author was saying, this is something that shows up time and time again in all of the best TED Talks. He said that the best ones, the speaker will make an enemy of the status quo and will convince the audience that what he's going, he or she is going to say is the way to overcome that status quo. That it would make an enemy of the status quo and convince the audience that what they are going to say is what can help them overcome the status quo. It's the idea of hope. And he said that this is the idea of hope. This is what Barack Obama got elected president off of in 2008 by sharing this message of hope. Hope that something different could happen. Something, that, something new could happen. And I believe that the greatest message of hope in the entire history of the world is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the Savior that we have has overcome death. Is there a greater message of hope out there than that? So if we speak that relevant message of hope, if we live our lives as though we believe that that hope is tangible, that that hope is real, maybe the world would look at it and not say, I don't need that religion. And the third thing is a radical passion to change the world. One of my favorite quotes of all time, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing great can ever be accomplished without enthusiasm. That when we start to show that we have a passion for the gospel, when we start to show that the gospel is life-changing, people start to take notice of that. Well, the unappreciated pastor in his blog post High on Church, continues with this. If this is true, I have something to say to you. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I blew it. I made a huge mistake. But remember, I never said my name was perfect, flawless, complete, or arrived. My name is Church. I welcome the hypocrite, the self-righteous, the dry, and the shallow. I welcome the sincere, passionate, forgiving, and selfless. I cannot shut my doors to the people who make you angry, uncomfortable, impatient, self-conscious. So why not come back to church and let all of these messed up people challenge you, sharpen you, strengthen you, and humble you? I can't promise you that the people will be great. This is church. It's not heaven, paradise, Beulah land, or the celestial city. Come back. God wants you here. The body needs you here. The world needs your witness here. 
you belong here. Hello, my name is Church. I miss you. I love you. I'm sorry. I can't wait to see you. During Jesus' ministry in John chapter 6, Jesus was going through a lot of troubling teachings. And the disciples that had flocked around him, the huge crowds that had gathered, they were just dropping like flies. They were like, this guy has lost him. We're out. And so they're, they're, they're just kind of leaving in droves. And it says in John 6, verse 66, Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with them. This, this is the interesting part. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And if we take hold of that, if we take hold of that promise that the Savior that we have has the eternal words of life, he is the Holy One of God that leads us to an understanding of this unknown God that has been proclaimed to us and who we live, we move, and we have our being. And that fuels within us a relationship that is personal, a radical passion to change the world, and a relevant message full of hope that can overcome even the grave. If people start to see that in our lives. Think they'll look at us anymore and say, I don't need that. Perhaps they'll begin to look at us and say, That's the one thing 